This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Today's uh, the first event for the semester in our One Book, One College series, which we're looking at Tony Horwitz's book, um, uh, Confederates in the Attic, which is a great book. If you haven't got it, feel free to pick it up. Uh, today we're talking specifically about the Civil War, uh, focus on the history aspect, and uh, I'm really excited to welcome Josh Fulton, who is an assistant professor of history um, in our history department. We'll be doing, I think we have like four more events over the course of a semester uh, in here for classes will come, they're open to the public, so I encourage you to you know, take a second look at the library website, and if something catches your eyes, uh, please come and join us. With that, I'll welcome Josh. Uh, to get started. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, Troy. Uh, I should also say, of course, uh, thank you to Moraine Valley Community College, the Rural Arts Department, uh, of course, uh, our college president, uh, Dr. Jenkins, as well as Wally Franzik, the dean uh, of, of liberal arts. Uh, the title for today's talk is kind of what you see there, uh, A Soldier's Life, Service in the Union and Confederate Armies. Uh, the, the intent for today's talk is to be, I, I think, a, a fairly broad overview of just basically some of the things uh, that soldiers had to, to go through uh, during this particular conflict. Uh, Abraham Lincoln you know, once referred to uh, the Civil War as a people's contest uh, that had something to do uh, with slavery. And I, I think for many of us who've you know, grown up in the late 20th century uh, and now in 2013, our understanding of the Civil War uh, and, and those who were involved in it is, is really shaped by, by a few things. Uh, our, our understanding maybe is things like this. Uh, for those who've never had a chance to maybe go to a, a Civil War battlefield, I mean, if you have, you know that there are, are monuments like this. For example, is a photo that I took at the Gettysburg battlefield. Uh, to units on both sides who'd served. Uh, for others, our understanding of the Civil War is shaped by popular culture uh, and whether or not we believe that Abraham Lincoln is a vampire hunter. Uh, or even films like Gettysburg or Gods and Generals. Uh, so again, with that, the Civil War was a terrible conflict. Uh, one that over 600,000 individuals lost their lives in. I know that more recently some revised figures have increased that, uh, but at least we can admit it was uh, a brutal contest, uh, most certainly so. It's also a contest that when historians have attempted to examine it, uh, they've done so through a variety of different ways. I had a professor when I was in graduate school who informed me that if in teaching the Civil War he could never make it onto a battlefield, that for him it would be a victory. Now, in my understanding, it was a war, so some understanding of the battlefield and some understanding of the men and women who were on those battlefields is an important part of the process and is an important way to remember what went on. Uh, so, you know, with that, uh, you know, sort of let us sort of begin with this. Uh, my understanding of, of, of the Civil War soldier and of how to, to think about the Civil War soldier uh, is to do so with asking a couple of, of basic questions. And so the bulk of our time today is really going to be analyzing, is really going to be looking at 
the questions that you see listed there. Why did the war start? Why did the soldiers fight? You know, if you were in the North, what made you want to join the Army? If you were in the South, what made you want to join the Army? If you were a uh, recently freed slave, what made you necessarily want to join? If you were a woman, if you were a recently arrived immigrant, uh, you know, what would make you want to participate in this particular contest? What role did race play? Obviously, uh, this discussion of the war and its beginnings as related to slavery and states' rights is something that we still grapple with today and something that folks on both sides have really divergent opinions on. Uh, and so it is important for us to recognize that. How did soldiers fight? How did soldiers live? How did they endure? Uh, obviously, of course, uh, experiences throughout conflicts and time, uh, soldiers have to go through a variety of different things. But this is, a, again, a very brutal conflict where disease kills more men uh, than anything else. Uh, so, you know, soldiers would have had uh, to go through things such as you know, dysentery and scurvy as just, a, just common parts of their daily life. And it's a pretty, pretty tough thing. And the final question, how did they engage once the war was over? Uh, because you've got, uh, on both sides of the conflict now, uh, literally hundreds of thousands of men uh, who spent the last four years uh, tearing the country apart. Uh, and now how do they put this back together? Uh, and how do they attempt uh, to move on? And how do they attempt to sort of remember this? Um, the Civil War is not just sort of a, a passing thing for the men involved. Uh, and so to, to start us off when it comes to the conflict, uh, I uh, found a, a quote from a, a soldier named Charles Steedman. He would eventually become a captain uh, in the, the Union Navy. And he wrote, quote, I am, as I have always been, a Union man. I know no North or South. All that I know is my duty to flag and country, under which I have served for the last 30 years. Now, the war would force soldiers and families to make a choice. Do you go North? Do you stay South? What do you necessarily do? Mr. Steedman chose to support the Union in 1860-1861. And this was something that, to his South Carolinian family, really sort of tore them apart. His brother, a South Carolinian planter, remarked, quote, I felt that my blood was cold in my veins. My brother, a traitor to his mother country, where lie the bones of his father, mother, and many dear relatives. So again, this was a very personal conflict, no matter really what side you, know, you are on. Now, this basic question of why the war started. You know, if we were going to have a discussion just on this, I'm certain we could be here for days and days. I mean, I guess if we wanted to, we could. You know, we could order some pizzas and stuff and have a chat, but that's probably not something that we would be able to do. I, I really think when it comes to this question of why the Civil War starts, we need to think about it in terms of why the Civil War starts when the Civil War starts, Okay. Because throughout much of the 19th century, uh, there were harbingers of, of conflict, harbingers of things to come. The Civil War's occurrence in 1861 is the result of the American Revolution, and it's the result of the decline of the Second Party system in the United States. During the American Revolution, the founders expressed a dissatisfaction of the governments of the time. Weary of tyranny, when it came time for them to build governments, they looked to recent history. 
So the British model in some cases, Enlightenment texts, as well as in the past, so Greece and Rome. The results were the governments that we saw, the Articles of Confederation, as well as eventually the Constitution, adopted uh, in the 1780s with George Washington inaugurated as the first president in 1789. For some, the Articles of Confederation was a government that limited the power, really, of a national authority. There was no executive, uh, and the ability for states to work together was, again, very, very limited. For some, this is a good thing. For others, this is a, a very, very, very poor thing. As a direct result, of course, the Constitutional Convention was convened in 1787, and the decision was made to support a government that was strongly national uh, in tone. There would be a clear executive. There would be clear national power as far as the federal government is concerned. Now, that national authority after George Washington, of course, goes into office would be questioned both during the Whiskey Rebellion and even after Washington's presidency with things like the Alien and Sedition Acts uh, and their responses by uh, Madison and Jefferson with the Alien and Kentucky, or the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. This question of is national authority acceptable, is it in and of itself a violation of what the founders had fought for, would continue to plague the, the early republic. In the early 1800s, national authority uh, would come under crisis. By the time we get to Andrew Jackson's presidency, there would be an issue of nullification when it comes to tariffs. And this pro-Southern support for what I guess we would call that states' rights sort of vision uh, is something that would emerge. Notably, a man by the name of John C. Calhoun uh, would conflict very publicly uh, with Mr. Jackson throughout this entire crisis. Basically, Southerners viewed uh, this idea of a, a United States as something that was up for grabs. In the adoption of the Constitution, states had gotten together in conventions and on their own had made the decision to support that particular government. Uh, and so what Calhoun argued was that just as much as those states made their own choice to, to enter this union, they could make their own choice to leave this union. Uh, and so, you know, whether or not you're someone who agrees with that or, or disagrees with that, uh, this was a, a powerful uh, position, uh, especially for many uh, southern plantation owners uh, and, and for many throughout the south who are grappling, you know, with this, with this conflict. Now, by the 1830s and 40s and 50s, American politics was strongly dominated by the second party system. Two main political parties, the Democrats and the Whigs. The party formerly of Andrew Jackson, the Democrats, sought big to oppose big national programs, such as national banks, and they competed with the Whigs until nearly the 1850s over the electorate. Throughout much of the 1840s and the 1850s, America was dealing with the effects of something called the Second Great Awakening, and with this, fights over these national programs as they related to slavery uh, were starting to rear their head. As the Whig Party declined, what emerged in its wake was our understanding of a Republican Party. The Republican Party at this time, by the 1850s, was a mix of third parties and part Whig. They strongly supported governmental activism and many forms of abolitionism or an ending to slavery. It was these 
interests, you know, this, this interest in, in abolitionism, along really with issues related to the Mexican-American War that brought the Civil War uh, into being, particularly in, in 1861. As a direct result of that war, the United States acquired a great deal of territory, particularly through something called the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And all of that particular territory was fought over throughout the 1850s. Uh, there were those who argued that an expansion of slavery into those territories was a fundamental necessity uh, for, for those slave owners. Uh, and those who opposed it didn't necessarily have a problem with slavery. But what they argued was that slavery as an economic model inhibited free market competition. So if they wanted to go get a job, they wanted to have a farm, it was going to be very difficult for them to do so if slavery was around. Uh, and so with that in mind, we get many of the conflicts that we've heard about when it comes to the, the pre-Civil War era. Uh, things obviously like the Compromise of 1850, John Brown's raid, uh, and eventually, of course, the presidential election of, of 1860. Now, by the late 1850s, we should note, of course, that the American South was fundamentally dominated by this, this southern planter class. A planter class that fully saw uh, the existence of anyone of African descent uh, as a sort of class of people that could do their dirty work for them. You know, really sort of a terrible thing. And I have a quote for us from at least one individual on this that I think is fairly helpful. Our slaves are black of another and inferior race. The status in which we have placed them is an elevation. They are elevated from the condition in which God first created them by being made our slaves. None of that race on the whole face of the globe can be compared with the slaves of the South. They are happy, content, unaspiring, and utterly incapable from intellectual weakness ever to give us any trouble as by their aspirations. End quote. So, again, you have this clearly racialized, clearly divergent view uh, of really what the purpose of slavery is, uh, you know, coming to a head, uh, particularly at this time. Now, for many of, of us who grew up in Illinois, uh, our understanding of, of this time in history probably is shaped by maybe a school trip that we had to take there. I mean, if you've been to Lincoln's home in Springfield, any, anyone been to Lincoln's home in Springfield? Yeah, it's a very, very in, insightful place, absolutely, and a very, very, very good place for us to see here. Now, Lincoln, of course, was elected president in November of 1860. Now, the immediate response on the part of uh, the South was secession by the state of South Carolina uh, in December of that year. Now, other states would follow soon after, and with many of their statements of secession, taking a similar tone to that of South Carolina in referencing the North. This is from the South Carolina Convention. They have denounced as sinful the institution of slavery. They have permitted open establishment among them of societies whose avowed object is to disturb the peace and to align the property of the citizens of other states. They have encouraged and assisted thousands of our slaves to leave their homes, and those who remain have been incited by emissaries, books and pictures, to servile insurrection. End quote. Basically what I'm trying to say is, while most individuals, most white individuals in the mid-19th century had no problem viewing African Americans as less than equal to them, be them in the North or in the South, 
slavery was a fundamental part or reason why the war came to be. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that for every southern individual, for every southern soldier, they entirely revolted directly result of the need to protect their slaves, because most of them didn't own slaves. But that idea of maintaining a racial status quo was certainly central for many of them. The photos that you see here uh, are of a couple of different Union soldiers. And for those who are interested in Civil War photography, uh, these are taken from the Library of Congress's website, and they are really a wonderful archive uh, to go and to, to be able to see you know, some of these different uh, sort of things here. Men turned out to fight for the Civil War in, in droves. From whole communities signing up to families, to individuals, substitutes, and draftees. In his work for Cause and Comrades, James McPherson notes, quote, the consciousness of duty was pervasive in Victorian America, end quote. For some soldiers, Confederates in particular, honor was a contributing factor. However, not all soldiers enlisted at the moment of secession, not all from the North fought for the North, and not all from the South fought for the South. Not all Southerners fought for slavery, and as we just said a second ago, not all of them owned slaves. Most Northerners didn't fight for abolitionism because they didn't believe in the equality of African slaves with whites. The Confederate Army began in earnest in early 1861. Jefferson Davis, in a decree in March of 1861, called for a 100,000-man army to be able to serve for at least one year. And those who served, those who joined early in 1861, had opinions much like a man named Reverend Palmer, who spoke at a departure ceremony in New Orleans. Quote, it is a war of defense against wicked and cruel aggression, a war of civilization against a ruthless barbarism, which would dishonor the dark ages. It is a war for your homes and your firesides, for your wives and your children, for the land which the Lord has given us, a heritage. It is a war for the maintenance of the broadest principle for which a free people can contend for the right of self-government. In speaking during a flag presentation to a unit, another statement comes, I think, and is particularly instructive in this. This is a woman named Miss Josie Thrasher in Georgia. She states, quote, The Constitution, which was framed by our fathers for the peace, happiness, and well-being of the whole country, which recognizes distinctly, and almost in so many words, the right of property in our servants, and spreads it broad folds equally over South and North, has been subverted by Republican fanaticism. She terms this. So what are we saying here? Soldiers fight for any number of reasons. Those who enlisted in the South, particularly in 1861, defense of home and hearth was prominent, and preservation of a slave South was central for many of these individuals. It should also be stated again that most in the Confederate Army, most enlisted soldiers in the Confederate Army, did not own slaves. In the whole South, approximately only 20% of white households actually owned slaves. Now, however, if one takes into consideration those who lived with slave owners, those who worked with slave owners, or those who relied economically on slave owners, that figure is well more than 50% in states like Virginia, a dominant force in the Confederacy. Typically in the Confederate Army, officers were more well-off than enlisted men. Most enlisted men were in their mid-twenties, and they were single. And while they didn't have a great deal of money, at least early in the war, if you look at the money their families had, these are well-off men. 
As much as Southern soldiers were convicted in their sense of duty to the South and to their homes and to their plantations, Union soldiers, as you can see again by these photos, had a, a, a similar commitment. Many of them felt a role of duty, the manly sense of honor, as defined by the Victorian era. One man in particular, who enlisted in the 12th Ohio, remarked, quote, Our fathers made this country. We, their children, are to save it. Another noted, This second war I consider equally as holy as the first, by which we gained those liberties and privileges. Now, while some members of the Union Army were clearly abolitionists, for most of them, preservation of the Union was the predominating factor as to why they joined up and to why they sought to serve their country. Much like the Confederate Army, this is an army, the Union Army, that is built from the ground up and will, by the end of the war, be hundreds of thousands strong, well over nearly a million men. And again, most, like those in the South who enlisted, were relatively young, in their mid-twenties, and many were single. Now, eventually this war would include you know, many more married men and much older men and much younger men and boys, uh, but it is early men, younger men in their mid-twenties at the beginning who are fighting. An interesting additional photo for us here, because again, it's not always men who are serving in this particular army. To the best of our understanding, approximately between 500 and 1,000 women uh, actually served uh, in the northern and southern armies during the Civil War. This is the photo of Private Albert Cashier, or uh, also Jenny Hodges, who served in an Illinois unit uh, during the Civil War. Now, if you were going to join the Army in the Civil War era, basically your physical examination was, can you fire a weapon? You know, if you can fire a weapon, you're fine, you're in. Uh, and so they really wouldn't have concerned themselves too much with one's physicality. If you dressed the part of a man and you looked sort of clean-shaven or had a clean face, the assumption was that you were basically a young teen. Uh, and so there really wouldn't have been a great concern with this. And so it was possible for women to join the army. Now, there are others who served in other ways, uh, obviously on the home front and as spies in some cases. Uh, but it is important to note, of course, the many different sort of facets of these armies. Now, not everyone joined voluntarily. Some, of course, joined as a result of the draft, uh, which in the Confederacy was present beginning in 1862. If you were in the North, that draft began in 1863. It was also possible to buy your way out of the service. If you were in the North, you could find yourself a substitute. Uh, you know, $300 would get you out uh, as well. And, of course, we shouldn't forget African Americans uh, who served honorably in this war uh, beginning in late 1862. Well, over 100,000 of them would be able to do so. They fought in segregated units, had few black officers, uh, and were paid, at least at the beginning, less than what white soldiers were paid. So, again, there is a real mix of, of individuals who are, are joining these, these armies, both in the Confederacy and in, in the Union. So, what are our questions? So, who is, who is fighting? Why are they fighting? You've got typically young men, men who are fighting for a number of reasons. How do they necessarily feel about race? I think what is really interesting about this is that, yes, for many in the South, Race is a predominating factor. But for many in the North, this idea of abolitionism is not the predominating factor when it comes to an understanding uh, of, of their service. 
Uh, Gary Gallagher's recent work uh, called The Union War is actually particularly instructive on this, this idea that the Union Army uh, was, was basically made up mostly of guys who really, really sought uh, to pretty much, you know, again, preserve, preserve the Union. This is a, a photo of a, a dead Confederate soldier uh, after the Battle of Gettysburg. And it is important uh, for us to keep in mind that the Civil War was fought in many, many theaters. It's fought in the West, it's fought in the East, it's fought in the Deep South, it's fought on the sea. Both sides, of course, faced conventional engagements, cavalry raids, and if you're someone who's ever been to Missouri, uh, you know that the Union, of course, faced an insurgency there, and, of course, had to develop a, a counterinsurgency, to use a 21st century phrase. Once a recruit went to a meeting or office and signed up, they went to something called a camp of rendezvous. They, at times, would do this individually, but in most cases, they did so uh, as full companies. So, again, full communities signed up of men and families and men they've known their entire lives. When they get to the camp of rendezvous, many of these men, of course, are going to be issued supplies. They're issued their uniform, but in some cases, soldiers preferred to wear the stuff they brought with them. In some cases, they wore homespun. In some cases, they were Zouave units. Now, the Zouaves, of course, were noted for the large amounts of red, in some cases, they had on their uniforms. As I've tried to explain it sometimes, it's as if you have soldiers who are basically wearing hammer pants from the early you know, 1990s. And in one case, there was a unit that fashioned itself after Garibaldi's Italian revolutionaries. Now, our understanding, of course, are our standard issue uniforms are the gray coat for the Confederate and the blue coat, of course, for the, the Union soldier. But for those Confederates, due to blockades and shortages, homespun butternut was common. Now, Union soldiers, of course, again, they're issued these common blue coats and these caps known as a hardee, but they don't always fit, and, of course, the men tended to hate them. Now, typically, units would then move on to something called a camp of instruction, and at that camp, the purpose is to teach units drill and discipline, which, again, few men in the North or the South had a clue about. They literally didn't know their left foot from their right foot when it came to marching. Volunteer units on both sides, as well, are able to elect their officers. Can you imagine if the military worked in the 20th century, if companies were able to elect their officers? I mean, it's a very interesting way to think about service. Most military training was men learning how to fire their weapon and basically how to march into battle. That's basically it. They were not fully seen through on how to carry out an attack. And that was something that was later regarded as being a real problem uh, for many of these men. Infantrymen on both sides of the conflict, uh, of course, would also use a number of weapons. Now, the most common one eventually in the war would be the early rifles, both the Springfield as well as the Enfield rifles, which would be fairly accurate when it comes to combat. Now, there have been some questions about these rifles. There have been some, some concerns. Uh, the, the usual story goes, of course, that the soldiers in the Revolutionary War fired smoothbore muskets, which, of course, had only you know, accuracy up to 80 yards, something like that, whereas these rifles were accurate up to nearly 400. So while Civil War soldiers engaged at a fairly close range, the question of why they would then, uh, of course, continue to engage so close um, you know, is, is a reasonable one, and there's really two explanations for that. 
The first, of course, is Civil War soldiers are using black powder. Uh, and black powder, of course, when firing one of these weapons, basically would leave a, a, a cloud of smoke over the infantry lines while they are firing. Uh, and so that accuracy is negated. Uh, and also, because of that rifling uh, in those weapons, uh, when they were firing them, uh, the bullet would curve. Uh, there are some records of bullets curving 10 feet, 12 feet, 14 feet. So the easiest and most effective thing to do in terms of training these men uh, is to have them together in infantry lines firing volley after volley at one another until the line broke. Now, I'm certain that many of us have seen uh, in, in, in some films this idea of soldiers firing three aimed shots in a minute. Okay? Uh, but the loading and firing of a Civil War weapon, especially under fire, was something that would take a great deal of, of time. Uh, to the best of our understanding, effective soldiers could get a shot off once every four to five minutes uh, if they were probably lucky. Uh, so it's a, it's a difficult thing. It's an absolutely difficult thing. So yes, how did they fight? For most Civil War soldiers, the fight was, was fairly conventional. Regiments tended to form into two lines uh, and fire these continual volleys after one another. Now, Civil War soldiers were also issued bayonets, which they rarely ever used. So if you're someone who's familiar with, say, the Battle of Gettysburg and this idea of charging, uh, again, you know, bayonet charges and, again, bayonet wounds were not a common thing uh, for, for soldiers uh, on either side of the conflict. I forget the specific figure, but it's a very, very low percentage. The photo you see there is uh, of tents for the United States Christian Commission. And this idea of, of how soldiers survived, I, I'm always fascinated by. Soldiers, many of them, are in volunteer units with men from their homes, and many felt responsible to those men. So while some would take up drinking, others would take to temperance, others would even take to religious revivals, which were common in the armies later in the war. And now if you're a soldier in the armies here, and you're not on campaign, you're in camp. And camp life, especially winter encampments, could take a fairly long time. One Confederate major wrote of encampments, quote, This is a dull, stupid life. All day long, we are cooped up with nothing to do and everything to make life disagreeable, end quote. So, you know, tell me how you really think. Civil War soldiers staged plays, read, and sent letters, especially through the aid of the United States Christian Commission. And camp life during engagements was a time to recover from wounds. Now, in camp, of course, for soldiers, the food they ate was at best moderately filling, but in most average cases it was awful and in some cases would make them sick. Union soldiers in the Army of the Potomac were issued, quote, one pound of hard bread, three-fourths of a pound of salt pork, or one and one-fourth pound of fresh meat, sugar, coffee, and salt, end quote. Now, that's in a perfect world, okay? What are they usually getting? In some cases, canned beef. That hard bread, which of course is hard tack, which I can say with experience, uh, bless you, don't make hard tack, uh, or at least attempt to eat hard tack, because you'll break your teeth on it. Guilty. Okay? Not a, not a good thing. You don't really want hard tack. Confederate soldiers were issued, quote, a quarter pound of bacon per day and one pound of cornmeal. Again, that's if food is available. So, 
you know, for those who are very health conscious and thinking about diets and vitamins, imagine spending every day bacon and cornmeal, bacon and cornmeal, maybe some coffee. That's about it. So, again, these guys are going to be susceptible uh, to a number of, of conflicts, a number of things. Disease, again, ends up killing more men than anything else during this war. Soldiers came down with a number of illnesses, and the medicine that was prescribed to them to be able to deal with this, again, by our definitions today, was, was pretty abhorred. Uh, I was reading a work recently about drug use as related to the, the soldiers in these wars, uh, and it's actually a pretty sort of insightful thing. Quote, in addition to alcoholic stimulants, opium-based painkillers were unwisely handed out in fantastic amounts. One estimate suggests that more than 10 million opium pills plus 2.8 million ounces of opium-related medicines were handed out by federal medical officers during the war. End quote. So again... If they're, you know, not able to sort of deal with these things, uh, the, the medical officials who are, are helping them have very little training. Uh, and in many cases, you're having guys who, by the end of the war, uh, are constantly taking drugs or, in some cases, of course, uh, drinking alcohol. So, yes, disease was rampant, especially in prison camps, such as at Andersonville, of course, in the south, and on the south side of Chicago, Camp Douglas. How did soldiers deal with this? Well, they endured. In some cases, though, they just left. Over 200,000 Union soldiers uh, and 104,000 Confederate soldiers deserted the armies. Some 147 Union soldiers were executed for the crime of desertion, but generally most individuals would be able to make it back. All right? It would be possible for them to be able to make it back. Now, I don't know if anyone here has uh, read the New York Times in the last couple of years, but they've had something called the Disunion Blog, where they've spent a lot of time going back and forth over different aspects relating to the Civil War, you know, some new research. And that phrase down there, many struggled with effects of the war, is a very interesting and I think very important part of the new Civil War research. I think many of us are probably aware of the issues related to PTSD and more recent veterans, of course, uh, in many of the United States' different conflicts. During the Civil War, of course, this process of seeing combat was partly called seeing the elephant. And our understanding of PTSD now, of course, is a great deal different than what it was then. But you've had some new scholars who've been doing research on soldiers who committed suicide during the Civil War, on soldiers who struggled with aspects of uh, you know, psychological effects uh, of the conflict. And this was true on both sides. Now, once the war wound down, you know, by late 1864, General Sherman's army has, of course, captured the city of Atlanta, and Abraham Lincoln is re-elected president of the United States. Grant has backed Lee's army into a siege at the city of Vicksburg, and a number of months later, of course, Lee's attempted a breakout, would, of course, end in the Battle at Five Forks and eventually the surrender at the city at, at Appomattox Courthouse the war would be over. You now have hundreds of thousands of veterans. Nearly 80% of southern white men would serve in the Confederate armies. And for many of them, uh, their understanding of this conflict uh, you know, would be far different than many of the soldiers in the north. They are, they're the losers here. Uh, they would have to return to their families and return to an economy that was destroyed as a direct result of this war. 
Slavery was abolished with the 13th Amendment, uh, and their ability to make a living would be hampered as a direct result of the changes in the cotton market that had occurred during the conflict. Now, if you lived in the North, soldiers tended to join, of course, something called the GAR, or the Grand Army of the Republic. This was a, an active political organization uh, in many towns and cities all throughout the North that helped these men, in some cases, be able to get pensions, which was something that occurred after the war, although that in and of itself was a very controversial thing, whether or not Civil War soldiers should be able to get pensions, and uh, would be a strong lobbying organization until the beginning of the 20th century. Now, on both sides of the conflict, soldiers did what they could to honor their fellow servicemen and also did what they could to remember the war. They held encampments. Both the GAR as well as the United Confederate Veterans would hold encampments every year. Uh, in some cases, of course, soldiers who, say, for example, served at the Battle of Gettysburg would, would every year go to the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, the battle site, and would, would, would you know, camp out for a few days. And the same thing is true in many of these other battlefields. Now, I have that phrase there for us. The last major gathering was at Gettysburg in 1913. And it was. But I think it's also particularly instructive that uh, African Americans really weren't welcome at that final encampment, which in some ways I think is a strong indication really of how the nation had chosen to remember the war 50 years later. Now, the last Civil War veteran would die in the 1950s. Uh, but I think our understanding of the war still continues on today. and is one that we still question a great deal. Didn't a lot of soldiers die from, uh, like, surgery where they would use the tools and not clean them and then they'd get the disease that way? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. The, the process of, of training a, a, a surgeon or a physician in the 1860s, um, by, by our definitions today, is a pretty appalling thing. I mean, you could still fail half your classes at med school and get your degree. Uh, and you didn't, you didn't actually have to touch a patient. You didn't have to, you know, touch one at all. But then again, they didn't understand germ theory, and so that idea of antisepsis is, is something that was just generally ignored. Uh, so yeah, uh, the, 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 the balls, of course, that would hit them, these small, soft lead balls that would hit them, you know, if, if they didn't hit anything, you know, could be a relatively clean wound. Uh, but if you sever a nerve or you hit a bone, it's going to shatter. And yeah, amputation is, is a pretty common thing. Um, I know that uh, some of you may have seen, of course, the, the more recent film Lincoln, uh, and so they depict part of this, of course, going into a hospital and, and seeing a lot of, uh, of course, limbs outside of the hospital, uh, and a lot of the different works, of course, on the hospitals at this time uh, spend a lot of time devoted to that, that, that what you would see coming in uh, would, would be that, absolutely. And while there were forms of anesthetic, they weren't always oftenly used, uh, or at least used in the manner that we're familiar with them being used. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But then again, mercury was used up until through World War II, uh, sadly, you know. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it has a, a pretty profound implication. So I'll ask one because everyone seems so quiet. <laughs> Since it seems that um, film is one of our number one ways that we remember uh, this war and the specifically soldiers, um, what films get it right that you would recommend? It's the tough thing. I don't, I don't know if any film ever really gets it right. None. Um, 
you know, you could make the argument that watching a documentary is a good thing, and and watching reenactors is is a good thing. But the the average Civil War soldier is a heck of a lot thinner than we are, and so most reenactors are not going to have the look of an actual soldier, uh, generally. Uh, you could make the argument in terms of race that glory is a pretty effective way at looking at the Union Army uh, for how the Union Army treated anybody who was uh, a freed slave or anyone who was uh, African American. Gods and generals in Gettysburg are are instructive for for general action, but they they in in their points don't necessarily take us to where we need to go. I mean, Gods and Generals is is a strong, almost apologetic film for the South, you know, sort of a strong lost cause film for the South. Uh, the first hour or so of the film is every single person in the South, including slaves, going, go off to war, yay for war, which you don't necessarily think of, you know, when it comes to, to the South. Uh, Gettysburg is instructive as well, but there have been a number of historians that have said Gettysburg was not the most significant battle in the war. Uh, so spending too much time on it does give one that impression that it, that it was the most important battle. So I think they're all good. They're all good gateways, uh, but there's not one that particularly gets it right. You know, when it comes to the prisoners and even the death in regard to the Civil War, I remember hearing a... Uh, uh, a statistic, I think it was Drew Faust's work on, on death and, and, and the war, that, that we don't know, we don't have markers for half of the guys who died, uh, which I, I think is a really, really tough thing. But yeah, the lack of exchanges certainly was a, yeah, I, I would agree, is a strong factor as to why you saw a lot of guys who, who died. Yeah, yes? Um, wasn't getting, oh, sorry, wasn't getting square like the war where the most people died in? Well, it's the, the biggest battle where you have the most sort of casualties there, but it's Antietam uh, where you see the most in a single day that die. Okay, other questions? Yes, go ahead. Uh, how instrumental was the war in beginning like a rail system across the United States? Was that, um, wasn't that like, the main thing that won the war for the, for the North? was an ability to, like, transport troops and, and goods with the rail system? Yes. I mean, you, you could argue that the Republican Party's passage of the Pacific Railway Act was also very integral during the war uh, of, of helping to create that rail system. Um, but, yes, support for it does give the North a, a strong advantage. Um, you know, with, within the South, you didn't really have too much when it comes to rail systems, uh, and, and General Sherman and his army were, were very adept at uh, at. Uh, rail was was present there, um, although the, the the rail service for the Union that, that runs the rails uh, when when the, the the rail system is turned back over to the private companies after the war is over, those guys have basically destroyed it, uh, and so you've got you know damaged rails and damaged cars, uh, and so it was pretty rough. But but you're absolutely right, the reliance on it uh, was a strong advantage for them. So this month uh, marks the 150th anniversary of the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Sure. Going into effect, at least. Absolutely. Can you talk about how that filtered down to the soldiers on the battlefield, or did it? It did. I mean, you. my, my earlier point that trying to emphasize that not every Union soldier was, was pro-abolition, um, 
while that's true, that doesn't beget the fact that there are strong abolitionists in, 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 the, in the army uh, who were, you know, if you were pro-abolition or even if you were anti-abolition, one thing, the, the Union Army w was politicized. I mean, the Union Army was, was very political. These soldiers are reading lots of political tracts. Uh, so they're, they're well aware of, of what's going on. Uh, so there are many who are for it, uh, but there are also many who are, are against it. Uh, probably the most prominent outlet for, for Democrats uh, in the North is going to be the Chicago Times, uh, which is eventually shut down uh, by the government uh, at one point. Uh, but uh, they're aware of it, and, and, and some of them are big fans of it, yeah. Oh, there we go. Excellent. It's pretty, yeah. Have you, have you tried it before? Yeah. Oh, I made my own. You made your own? Yeah. I, I attempted when I was younger to make my own, and I... It's, it's very hard, yeah. I, I, I literally broke a tooth in half attempting to, to eat it, so... But then again, it's, you know... So we can, living learn. we can all pass it around and take a bite. There you go. No, <laughs> yeah, good luck with that, yeah. <laughs> okay, other questions? All right, we can wrap things up. I want right. to thank Josh. Thank, thank everyone for coming, and uh, have a great afternoon. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.